This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Horace, who flourished under the Emperor Augustus, was one of the greatest poets of his age and is one of the most quoted of any age. Carpe diem, nil desperandum, nunc est bibendum, that's Horace. He was the son of a freed man, that is, a former slave, from southern Italy, and thanks to his talent achieved high status in Rome despite fighting on the losing side in the civil wars. His odes are widely thought his most enduring works, yet he also wrote his scholarless epodes, some philosophical epistles and broad satires. He's influenced poets ever since, including those such as Wilfred Owen, who rejected his line, Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. With me to discuss Horace and his works are Emily Gowers, Professor of Latin Literature at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of St John's College, William Fitzgerald, Professor of Latin Language and Literature at King's College London, and Eleanor Gorman, Senior Lecturer in Classics at the University of Bristol. Eleanor Gorman, what do you know about Horace's background? Well, as you've already uh, mentioned, he was the son of a freedman, which makes it seem like um, he started with considerable disadvantages in terms of status. But uh, we know that his father, he tells us that his father was um, actually a very wealthy freedman um, and spotting his son's talent, invested a lot in his son's education. So although Horace was the son of a freedman, um, he found himself getting the very best education his father could buy in Rome and um, then being sent to Athens for uh, the finishing touches to his education. Can we prod a little at this freedman idea before we go? Freedman, which implies that he was a slave. Mm -hmm. Now, the Sun dispute was he a sort of full-time slave or a part-time slave or an accidental slave or a slave Mm -hmm. at all. What do you think? Um, I suppose this is this is referring to the possibility that his father was enslaved um, when the southern towns were involved in the social war. That's it. Um, so had he been a slave, bef- had he been a free man before that, had he become enslaved after the social war and then had he fought his way back to freedom? Um, really, Horace doesn't tell us anything about that. Um, so so what what we mostly have from Horace is, is just the emphasis on uh, the freedman's status, but also very affectionate stories about... Um, the amount of attention and care that his father put into giving him the very best education that money could buy. But as it once freed, he made his way as an auctioneer and made quite a lot of money and was able to send his son, as you say, for a good education. Horace played on this background, though, quite mm-hmm. straightforwardly, didn't he? Did he play on it? Did he use it? Or uh, even maybe did he slightly invent some of it? What do you think? Um, well, you're unlikely to say that you're a Friedman's son when you're not a Friedman's son. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, similarly, you're, you're un- unlikely to, um, uh, to, to say that you can afford to do certain things if you can't afford to, to do certain things. So I think, I think we can, be, um, we can take, take it pretty much uh, as given that uh, he was indeed uh, from a Friedman's uh, family and that sometimes that came up as a, as a disadvantage. Um, so he sometimes mentions... Uh, the way in which uh, this would come up as a taunt either in social settings or um, when he was fighting on Brutus's side. Um, but it's also clear that from the education he received, he was part of a network of rich and well-educated Romans and he had a lot of friends who uh, could support him in his rise through, um, through, the, through the classes, as it were. 
But his background allowed him to say, look how far I've come, look how well I've done, look where I started from, where I've got to, that sort of thing. I'm Absolutely. sure he never said it, except he seems to have done once or twice. If, you, if you, Horace <laughs> hadn't been a poet, I think he would be a very interesting figure for a social historian. This relationship with Brutus is interesting. It glamorises it and, and gives it a sort of contour of his earlier life, that not, like nothing else. Brutus persuaded him, or he was persuaded, or he, he anyway took Brutus' side in the Battle of Philippi. He fought in that. We presume he fought like Socrates fought. He fought like a soldier, not just tagged along and they lost yes and yes. nevertheless Augustus forgave him Octavian forgave him but he was going to be Augustus he was going to be Augustus never in, mind the, the he forgave him is the important thing about this absolutely <laughs> I, I completely agree uh, that is the important emphasis um, Octavian in the aftermath of um, civil conflict was always looking around uh, to bring former enemies on side and to be seen to bring former enemies on side, whether they were very significant um, uh, senatorial figures or whether they were smaller fry like Horace. Um, And and the more of these um, pardoned figures that Octavian uh, brought back to Rome, the more he was building up um, a network of former enemies who are now allowed to continue to live their lives. So, Emily Gaz, son of a slave, uh, friend of Brutus, losing in the Battle of Philippi, forgiven by Octavius, who was going to become Augustus. <laughs> How did he get his foothold in Rome, despite the dice? Well, it's when he went back to Rome, obviously. It, it's, it's clear that for him, the big watershed was a meeting with Mycenas, who was a friend of Octavian and became his right-hand man. And he tells us in the satires how he was thrust into this man's presence by Virgil and another poet called Varius as a kind of uh, stammering, shy country boy with nothing to say for himself. And then by some miracle, he was invited back and became part of a poetic circle. He must have been writing poetry at that time. They couldn't just say there's this stammering country boy. They must have said yes. this stammering country boy stammered out a few good lines. Well, he does. That, that's his persona in the satires, as somebody who in those days didn't know how to speak. Uh, and the interesting thing is that although he talks to Mycenas about his you know, social background, he never mentions his poetry, never mentions mentioning the poetry in that interview. Can you tell us a bit more about Mycenas, who is building up a great network of patronage, much to Augustus, who, in one of you, I'd say he's one of Augustus, becomes Augustus, his Mm. best friends, um, closest friends. Um, This is a cultural revolution as well as a political revolution, a quiet cultural uh, uh, takeover. Can you tell us a bit more about him? Well, his origins are pretty obscure as well, even more so. I mean, he he claimed, or the poets claim on his behalf, that he was descended from Etruscan kings. I mean, he seems to have been rather a flamboyant figure about Rome, a bit uh, outre, and he never held any elected office. So he got some of the kind of vitriol directed against him after his death for that. He was a, a friend in a high place of Octavian and then Augustus, as was Agrippa. Agrippa married into Augustus's family. Mycenas never did that. He was somehow on the fringes as a kind of eminence grise. And particularly in the 1930s, was often called Augustus's minister of propaganda. It's a rather sort of sinister figure. Um, nobody is completely sure whether there was 
a cultural programme as such. Maybe that Mycenas was a civilised person who liked to have poets hanging around at his house and that somehow they eventually got introduced to Augustus. His satires, as I understand it, were his first work and they they made some sort of impact. Can you tell us about that? Yes, the satires um, came out in the mid-30s BC uh, during what's called the triumviral period, a time of growing tensions between Octavian and Mark Antony. And a funny ragbag, that's what satire used to mean, they're written in hexameters, which is the same metre as epic, but they couldn't be further away from epic. They're, they're attempting to be as near as possible to prose. Very modest, very unpretentious. In fact, Horace called them his conversations, his sermones, uh, his chats. So Horace adopts the persona of a slightly bumbling, straight-talking friend to a great man who was trying to teach people some very basic life lessons. Such as? Keep your head down, don't think the grass is greener, avoid stress, don't have any political ambitions. Very conservative agenda. So where's the satire as we now understand it about stabbing people? (laughs) Well, exactly. (laughs) If you pick up Horace's satires looking for political vitriol and juicy gossip, you're going to be very disappointed. Was he self-consciously not doing that? I I think he was, yes. Um, So there's a bit of an irony in his giving us conversations because sermo, another meaning of sermo is gossip and you're not going to get any gossip at all. Um, His conversations are really about how he learnt to talk in the right way which wasn't just being articulate, it was also being discreet. So his journey towards talking in the right way is also a journey towards knowing when to shut up. Um, I mean, that makes the satire sound boring. They're not boring. They're full of interesting fables and anecdotes and some quite dicey moments. But this persona of being a little bit, as I said, stammering or bumbling or not knowing how to speak helps... Horace as well, because he had this meteoric rise, and if you're looking for his satirical victims, you're going to find them in the people that he uses to mask that rise, who are people who are always very loud and brash and pushy, and the most famous of those is a so-called pest in Satire 9, who's a man who comes up to Horace in the streets in Rome and tries to wangle an introduction to Mycenas, and Horace is extremely unresponsive. And then the logical extension of that is in Satires 2, when Horace and Augustus are more established, when he basically hands the microphone to a lot of self-appointed sort of wellness pundits, from philosophers to dietitians, and gets them to do the talking. Very nice. So he's saying he's so close to power that it's not safe for him to talk anymore. Good to think that microphones were around then. Oh. So. <laughs> Maybe it was, and clocks were striking, no doubt, to say, <laughs> yes, Julius right. Caesar, everything's fine. And William Fitzgerald... Who were the audience for these early works? Well, Horace himself said that he, he wanted a small audience. He wanted a small audience of elite connoisseurs. Did you say that because that's where he got anyway? Well, in, inevitably, that is what he was going to get. <laughs> um, he, he also said uh, notoriously that he hated the profanum vulgus, the um, profane crowd. Well, no lyric poet was going to get an enormous public in, in Rome. The books were expensive, they were expensive to make, they were expensive to buy and they were in the form of book rolls they were quite difficult to use 
punctuation was scarce, sometimes words weren't divided. So books would not circulate terribly widely. Literacy was not very great. But you have to bear in mind, of course, that the Roman Empire was big. There were a lot of people, but a small percentage of those would be reading the works of the great writers. Did they have to be read when they're not read aloud to people who are illiterate? Wasn't that, did not, that's right. Did not that go on? Reading aloud was, was very important. Uh, recitations in the time of Horace were beginning to become a kind of official event, but they weren't big mass events. They were um, by invitation. Uh, they were small groups of people who, who knew about poetry and uh, reading aloud was was very important. Uh, Ovid says that he was charmed by the sound of Horace's poetry. So yes, you you didn't have to be literate to hear Horace, but you had to be invited. And really, there's there's one exception to this. Horace did reach once a very large audience, and that is when he was commissioned by Augustus to write the Carmen Saeculare, which was a a hymn celebrating a great age and celebrating the Augustan dispensation. And it was sung by a choir of boys and girls. And Horace was enormously proud of this. So as with everything with Horace, you've got a bit of a contradiction here. You know, he wants a small audience, but he's very proud when he gets a big one. And we must, we must assume he's peddling along with money inherited from his father, mm. not too worried about having to work for, for money and being taken up by a small crowd mm. and making his way uh, up, up by this poetic path, which he'd uh, mm. staked out quite early on. Can you tell us about the epodes? Is that how I pronounce it? Which you read yes, about this epodes, time? Yes, yeah. the epodes are sort of the ugly duckling of Horace's. Uh, <coughs> and they, until recently, really hadn't received a lot of attention. Horace himself probably called them iambi, which refers to a meter, iambics, and the associations of this meter were with what we call blame poetry, insult, uh, obscenity, attack poetry. And uh, he was channeling a, an archaic Greek poet, Archilochus, uh, who was reputed to have attacked his uh, enemies so virulently that uh, this family committed suicide, they hung themselves. So this was poetry as weapon, as, as, as instrument, and attack poetry, which would have been appropriate to the period in which he's writing them, the period of civil war and civil strife. And so uh, we find qu quite a variety of themes in this poetry, and, and Horace sometimes deals with the great events of his day, sometimes speaks as a citizen addressing other citizens as a sort of public intellectual in the manner that Archilochus might have done. But what makes these poems rather more complicated than that is that throughout the epodes, this, the theme of impotence crops up again and again. I was going to come to impotence. Mm, yes, <laughs> well... <laughs> I'm going to come to impotence with Ellen. <laughs> ah, OK. But you want to introduce impotence. Well, uh, <laughs> yes, um, I mean, because the epos are so, are so contradictory about this, on the one hand, he, he is, this is poetry as power. On the other hand, Horace is constantly uh, writing about his own impotence, metaphorically and literally. Can I move on? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. If you don't mind, don't mind. Uh, Alan, he 
that so the ground is laid for me. I need <laughs> yeah. to do all that. Um, but he was very horrible about women. Mm-hmm. That's yes. right. Yeah. Um, nearly all the time or all the time, especially about old women and so on. And mm-hmm. it was driven... Is, is there a connection, as was being suggested before I rudely interceded? Is there a connection between the, the Those two, yeah. horribleness about women and, and these, these sort of claims about impotence? Yeah. Um, that was the question. Oh, right, I see. <laughs> um, well, a poet doesn't have to say that he's impotent. So the, the, Emily has already been talking about, you know, the particular pose that a poet takes at a particular time. Um, and it's interesting that um, Horace is as we would see it, unpleasant about women, as you say, particularly older women, not just in the iambic poetry in the epodes, but also across the odes. Mm-hmm. He has a really nasty ode where mm-hmm. he says, you know, finally you're, you're getting mm-hmm. white-haired and ugly and, you know, revenge is sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so his, his, his unpleasantness about women and his objectification of women um, continues across the poetic corpus, but it's mm-hmm. only in the epodes that that um, virulent attack upon certain women also is associated with impotence. So it seems to be very strongly associated, as, mm. as, um, as William says, with the poetry of blame, which is also always the poetry of defence, that the, the iambic poet is always presenting himself not as attacking unprovoked, but attacking in order to defend himself against some aggressive interlocutor. Um, and so, in, in a way, I think what Horace is doing is he's projecting this, posi- this pose of impotence um, onto the woman as somehow her fault and, and using the vehicle of iambic poetry to connect together the abuse of women and the pose of impotence. That's very elegantly uh, excused or inscribed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, um, where does he best display his skill with the Latin language and could you possibly give us an example or two? example or two. Because he's supposed uh, yes. to have been extraordinarily skillful with using ancient yes. Greek and 6th century right. Greek, 3rd century BC Greek, 3rd century BC Greek and turning it into Latin and so on. Yes, I think there's a, a, a lifelong fascination with technique, the techniques of poetry and with language. Um, I'll give you two very different examples. Uh, one is from the satires where the skill is not supposed to show because it's all meant to be like chatty, normal conversation. But, of course, every syllable counts. We know that looking back. Um, So one example would be uh, the first satire ends very abruptly. He says, Webum non amplius Adam. I'm not going to say another word. But then he takes the last syllable of Adam, am, and he runs with it straight away into the first syllable of the next satire, which then turns into an enormous exotic word, ambubayarum, which means Syrian dancing girls. So it's a very tiny moment, but it's like a little hiccup. But it shows how interested he is in showing how speech works, that there's just a little pause and then it goes bubbling up again. That's one example. So that's, that's one great. example. What's the okay. next one? Well, the other one's completely different, and you'll all have heard it before. <laughs> um, so a phrase that's often used of Horace, well, the two phrases used of Horace's brilliance, one is from the novelist Petronius, and it's curiosa felicitas, which means something like contrived serendipity, the, the, sort of the just right combination of words. And then there's a, a phrase Horace himself made up, which is calido junctura, which again means something like the clever combination of words. So the example I give you is um, splendid amendax. And this is a phrase from the Odes, and it's describing in context um, a mythical heroine called Hypermestra, who was the only one out of all her sisters not to kill 
her husband on their wedding night. And it means splendidly lying. And this is a phrase that has everything going for it because it rhymes, so that's the serendipity. Uh, it's a striking oxymoron, the idea of the, the, the lie, which is noble. But the word splendidus also means shining, and Horace is picking up on links that the Greeks made between glitter and fame. And a few poems later, he uses splendidus again to talk about uh, his favourite fountain, the Fons Vanduziae, which he devotes a whole poem to. And he says it's splendidior witro, it's, it's more shiny than glass, at the moment when he's making it into a, an immortal fountain. So it's almost as though he knows that the minute he's invented splendid amendax that it's going to be emblazoned on our memories for all time. Which it is. Oh, I, I just learned that Julian Assange used the word mendax as his hacker name. As though his, <laughs> there was something rather splendid about his underhand. If you need authority, you reach yes. out, don't you? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> William Fitzgerald, the, the metre of the poems matter to him. Can you give us some idea of the, the metres he played with? Yes. Uh, well, Horace, again, was very proud of the fact that he brought the metres of archaic Greek lyric to Rome, a sort of imperial plundering in a way. And uh, he uh, showed off in the, the beginning of the Odes, Odes 1, with uh, a sequence of nine Odes, all in a different metre. So he was saying, look, here I am. Uh, and, and this is, you know, one of the ways I'm going to stake my claim. Can you give us a few a few mm. lines from one or two of them, or three? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, none uh, of you, none of you have any notes, so it's uh, me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think of the uh, the period, quis multa grecalis te pua in rasar, perfusus liquidis urget adoribus grato pira subantro, qui flawam religas comam, and so it goes on, but. What, what's, uh, Is there any chance of you telling us what that means? Oh, uh, no, none at all. <laughs> <laughs> this is Horace saying, look it up. Uh, saying to to a uh, young man, no, saying to Pyrrhus, sorry, uh, what is this young man you're with at the moment that uh, is rolling around with you in roses? Um, for whom do you tie back your hair? And it's his most famous poem. Milton tried to translate it almost into a sort of Latin English. Um, and that was as far as you could get in terms of uh, writing as Horace wrote in English. And it sounds terrible. Uh, it, it just can't be done. But many of Horace's poems are written in these four-line stanzas. So, and, and not every line is the same rhythmically. So you've got a very complex unit. Uh, you haven't got rhyme, so it's not chopping up bits of uh, chunks of verse the way we do uh, and so you've got this sort of snake-like sinuous rhythm sweeping through these poems uh, it is as, as Ovid said very musical and in fact of course when um, English public schools came to write their school songs they used Horatian meters and they just wrote themselves into music almost, almost immediately so his his meters are various and varied in in their nature themselves. Eleanor Gorman, how did he relate to Virgil, who was the great poet of Rome, who was writing the Iliad, the great uh, pounding poem 
of Rome and the Georgics and so on. And Virgil never mentions him, as I understand it, mm-hmm. uh, but he seems to be have been in awe of or very aware of the mm-hmm. eminence of Virgil. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some idea of what went on, if anything, between them and where Virgil stood? Okay. Um, Well, Emily has already mentioned that Virgil, along with Varius, was one of the uh, poets already in contact with Mycenas who introduced Horace to Mycenas. And Horace talks about that in uh, his satires. Um, In his satires, he also um, mentions uh, his close feeling of friendship with Virgil. And um, in some of the odes, he, he... he fleshes that out, um, first of all, by um, referring to Virgil as the second half of my soul, animae dimidium mei, um, and also by um, mourning the death of another uh, literateur friend and saying, many people will, will mourn this, this man Quintilius, no one will mourn him more than you, Virgil. So really celebrating the way in which that friendship is grounded in uh, shared literary sensibility. Was there any sense of rivalry? That's that's always the interesting thing. Um, in Satires One Five, where um, uh, Horace talks about a journey he took along with Virgil and Varius and some others, um, he seems to be um, s- slightly playing with Virgil's existing poetic corpus. And at the time that Horace was writing the Satires, Virgil was really known for the Eclogues, his first body of poetry. The um, the pastoral poetry. And there's a, there's a certain sense in Satires 1-5 that Horace is affectionately sending up the rustic world, the very refined uh, pastoral world of uh, the Virgilian eclogue um, in, a, in a, a slightly more satiric rustic world. Um, one of the things he also does in that poem is he gives an account of um, a row between two lowly rustic figures. And when we, we turn to Virgil's Aeneid, we see Virgil actually seeming to adopt some of that terminology to talk about a much more high-flown epic encounter. So it looks like they're sort of responding in a friendly way, I think, to each other's poetry. I'm not sure there was direct rivalry, partly because they chose such different genres in which to write. Emily Giles, did, did, did he ever express an ambition to be the great poet of Rome or an ambition for where his odes and other work would end up? Uh, yes, he did. Um, I think it starts in a in a gap. Um, at the end of the satires, at the end of satires one, he wheels on a kind of pantheon of the new canon of Latin authors who are going to succeed the Greeks. And there's one doing tragedy and there's one doing comedy. Virgil's doing the eclogues. And then there's a space. And he doesn't tell us who's doing lyric or who's doing iambic or who's doing epistle. So he's found a gap. Um, where he can fit. Um, and so that looks almost in retrospect as though there was a plan for the future. Um, but then he wrote the Odes. And the Odes came out in 23 BC, um, not long before Virgil published the Aeneid. And it's the same, it's the equivalent ambition to write the masterpiece. This is the magnum opus, this is what he was building up to all along. And this is where Horace lifts his eyes off the ground and he becomes a star and he becomes a sublime poet. Who says he's a star? He does. (laughs) He starts as he means to go on in the first poem. He makes an outrageous request of Mycenas, who's still his dedicatee. He says, if you make me number 11 in the canon of nine Greek lyric poets, I will bump the stars with my head. 
And that is such a hubristic remark from, you know, little humble Horace that we do a a double take at that point. Is he joking? Some people think he's joking. Uh, I think, no, he's changed personality. He really is going to soar now like a lyric poet. So he's gone out and found a body of work that nobody except Catullus really had tackled before and he's making it his domain. And actually one of the poems that Ellen mentioned where he says that Virgil is half of his soul is a kind of bon voyage poem. Virgil is sailing off to Athens. He's wishing that the elements will protect him and you know he's sailing out perhaps on the high seas of epic. But I think... He's banishing Virgil from his lyric domain at that point. I think there's no place for him here. They're going there on their separate paths. Well, Mitchell, which of the odes stands out for you? Don't worry, I won't test you again. Uh, <laughs> Except if you want to, but which one um, stands out and why? Well, I, I couldn't really say, uh, you know, which which stands out more than the others or so many, but I, mean, I take as an example one of his beautiful spring poems and... I'm thinking of the, the the fourth poem of of book one of the odes, which begins Solbit or Acris Hems, winter is being dissolved in spring, and it goes on to describe the various things that denote at the beginning of spring, the uh, ships are dragged down, winched down into the sea, um, and the flocks now are let out of their pens. And then something quite different, Venus and her nymphs and graces dance under the moon that hangs, uh, imminente luna, the moon that hangs over and watches them, uh, while Vulcan goes to his uh, smithy. And then um, something quite uh, normal happens with with Horace. He says, well, what is the response to this? What should we do? So nunc, now, now you must bind your head with the flowers that have been released, drink, in other words, um, and sacrifice to Faunus. Uh, and then uh, something quite unexpected happens because death comes in. Pallid amours, pale death, strikes at the door of the rich and the poor equally. O oh, rich Cestius. And this is where he addresses uh, his, the addressee for this poem uh, and says that you must not have long hopes uh, for a life that may be short because soon... Uh, the shades of the underworld will be about you. And once you're there, you will not be able to drink, nor will you be able to admire the beautiful Lysidas, he says, at whom now all of the youth is aflame and soon the young girls will grow warm for him. And so it ends with this word, they will grow warm. And so we've started with the spring and we end with another transition as Lysidas moves from being an object of desire for boys, men, to an object of desire for women. He lays great store by drinking in company, doesn't he? Which is yes. one of the reasons 18th and 19th Indeed. century country squires mm. went alongside. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. Alan, um, how constrained is he by politics? Octavian by now has become Augustus <laughs> yes. and declared a republic, although it's in fact a, a different mm-hmm. thing. He's mm-hmm. a, Augustus is the emperor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the seeding away other ideas, the civil wars. Mm-hmm. Rome is always worried by, is there going to be another civil war? Yes. And still worried, is there going to be another civil war? Yes. Did that affect or afflict him in any way? I think the memory of the civil wars and the fear of the civil wars is a really interesting leitmotif to read across the first three books of the Odes because 
often in quite unexpected times in those odes when he's going Caesar is returning or he's talking uh, simply about drinking or love you suddenly have these moments of transition where he's suddenly talking about civil war the crime of civil war will the Romans ever um, be free of their crimes Um, so there are these little plunges into darkness throughout the first three books Um, and it's really only at the end of the third book actually the end of the fourth book and much later on in his career um, where he says um, we don't have to worry about civil war now and yes he does pin that on Caesar Augustus who he is now quite happily calling Augustus in his poems Um, whether that constitutes a constraint I'm not sure because of the the nature of um, Horace's poetry and the way in which he's able not only to incorporate these different layers of of themes, uh, a sort of slightly mythologised world of quasi-Greek poetry, um, song, divinities, um, alongside a very tangible sense of the city of Rome and uh, current social... uh, in the current social world, um, within that, that seems to give him the opportunity to reflect on different political events um, and and see different points of view at once. And the example I'd give for that, obviously, is the Cleopatra Ode 137, um, where we are presented with the newly defeated monstrous queen, who's referred to as a fatale monstrum, a death-dealing monstrosity, in one stanza, um, and then at the end of the poem is presented in really quite a sympathetic light, non humilis mulier, the woman not lowly, who will not deign to be led in a Roman triumph. And he's able to incorporate both of those views in those poems. So politics seems to me to be another of the themes that he can work on, but it doesn't seem to offer him constraint. Emily, Emily Gars, can we talk about the epistles? I know we're rushing through yes. this, but uh, yes. but for most people, it could be exhilarating. <laughs> well, um, yes. How do they differ from his other works, these epistles, letters? Well, he comes down from the sky, really, to write the epistles, uh, not long after the odes. Um, it's a return to hexameter poetry. They're often grouped with the satires, um, but there are some crucial differences. One is that they're letters, not conversation, Um, But you also get the feeling that something like an imperial court is taking shape. Um, So he writes to the go-betweens and the lackeys and the provincial governors and even to a royal doctor. And he he even spills the beans on how to be a successful lackey yourself. That did him no good, did it? No. You you flattered your patron and made, made way for him in the street. Which led later on, at the time, for him to be called very smarmy and uh, well. And that's so on. right. But this is that he he has also become middle aged now, and more independent. And so he's kind of chafing at the bit with his relationship with his patron, and he tackles it sideways through a number of fables. And one of them is rather close to the bone, and it describes how a great man in Rome uh, was coming home one day, and he saw a very ordinary man sitting, he says, in the shade of a barber's shop, picking his nails. So it's a lovely moment of happiness and self-absorption in the middle of the city. And the great man makes him his pet project. He gives him a farm, and Mycenas had given Horace the Sabine farm. But everything goes wrong, the crops fail, the sheep die, and the ordinary man comes running back and says, give me my life back. And Horace himself would like his life back but he's become a celebrity and a pillar of wisdom. He'll never go there again. Um, He can start to do philosophy in his old age, because that's what you do in your old age in Rome. 
um, he's still looking for you know moral health and physical health, and he says, you know, if you're of sound mind, you can do that anywhere. You can be happy in the in the country, or in the town. Would that sum up his philosophy for you, then, William? Yes, it would. Um, Horace said that uh, he was not signing up to any particular philosophical school, um, but he did call himself a pig from the herd of Epicurus. Uh, so if he, uh, if he has a philosophical affiliation, it is with the Epicureans and with the idea that pleasure is the uh, end of life, the goal of life, um, but the important thing is that the things that stand in the way of it uh, stand in the way of enjoying the pleasure that is available to you, and that is fear of death primarily. Um, so uh, Horace, as a, as a lyric poet, is uh, appropriately an Epicurean because of their emphasis on the present, the now. Uh, and so, of course, you get these <coughs> tags like carpe diem, um, which which means really sort of slow things down, savor the day, not not snatch it, um, and 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 focus on the present. He it, he's a kind of strange uh, Epicurean because uh, Epicurus said that one should avoid uh, live without being noticed. So all right, Horace is very keen to retire to his. Uh, Sabine Farm and talks about uh, that aspect of his life uh, that is unambitious but he's also a very ambitious uh, poet and uh, for Epicurus ambition is one of the ways in which anxiety enters uh, human life he is a, a very uh, flexible poet as far as his philosophy is concerned and that has made him available imitation to all sorts of different kinds of uh, standpoints and different kinds of poets. Do you think he set out to make himself quotable because he's been, he's been one of the most quotable poets of the ancient world, hasn't he? He has, yes. Um, he's, I mean, the, the Romans live in a culture of quotations, so yes, I would say definitely he, he uh, could see that um, his poetry, and in particular his lyric poetry, lent itself to uh, that sort of exception. And one of the things we see from uh, rhetorical literature in the first century AD onwards is references to uh, students writing down quotations in books, the kind of thing we would now call a florilegium um, or a scrapbook of quotations. So um, he definitely was aware that people would would do what Emily has has done and and say, splendide mendax, Mm. um, and, and would uh, and would pick up on these phrases and, and tout them around. Um, lyric really helps for that because of um, what William was talking about, uh, the extraordinary compression of the lines and the economy of the words. Um, so uh, it, it encourages these sorts of juxtapositions, these striking juxtapositions of phrases. William has referred to the uh, influence of the public schools or also mm-hmm. the grammar schools where mm-hmm. you know about it. You learned a lot of Latin and grammar schools, and also the church. So mm-hmm. three big influences bearing mm-hmm. in at that mm-hmm. time. How is his influence today, would you say? Mm. Well, to simplify, I think um, responses to Horace split between whether you regard him as your friend or you don't. <laughs> so the satirists traditionally see through him. Um, see through him as a... Well, Juvenal thought he was smug and pampered, Dryden famously called him a, a well-mannered court slave. Uh, Ariosto, dealing with difficult patrons, uh, called him a liar. 
you know, obsequious liar. Um, but then in the other camp, other people who regard Horace as their dearest companion, somebody you could carry in a pocket volume with you on your travels to fortify and refresh you with his lovely mottos. Um, the, uh, the satires and epistles were, were originally the most popular works because they were used for teaching grammar and morals, uh, the, the suitable ones anyway. Um, the odes took longer to catch on. I mean, there's something about the, the rational and moderate and sweet-tempered Horace that's very appealing in the 18th century. As appealing today? Uh, perhaps not, but a lot of lyric poets have engaged with Horace. Um, I think he's a poet's poet. Um, I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, that this interesting technique, the personal details that he gives us, um, the love of landscape, um, the idea that you could hide away from your public about whom you're rather morose. Um, but I think above all, um, thoughtfulness all through his career about what a poet is for and whether you should step outside and, and have a public voice um, or join some national movement. So all kinds of lyric poets like Wordsworth and Keats and Pushkin and um, Leopardi and Auden and Robert Frost on his farm, they've all engaged with Horace on some or all of those levels. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Emily Gowers, Eleanor Gorman, and William Fitzgerald. Next week, it's the philosophy of hope uh, and how it relates to knowledge, or is it anything more than wishful thinking? Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I, don't know, I, th I think one of the things that uh, I could add to to what Emily was saying is that is the modern sort of concern with Horace as the master of the graceful sidestep and the the way in <laughs> there's a wonderful poem by Donald Davy which he says that it's it's like a, a train going into a tunnel and coming out at a different landscape you know he 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 has he has that way of dealing with things by by dissolving into another scene or uh, transitioning and there is something that that has been both attractive and unattractive about that but that's that's to do with I mean I think you know one question is can we what can we make of him today I mean given that he's mm -hmm. particularly he's he his attitude to women is not good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> women make hardly a, a much hardly yeah. an appearance, except you know under pseudonyms. Yes, uh, but but I'm interested yeah. that that you see that transition idea as, as a mm. sort of graceful sidestep, which mm. suggests. Mm. I mean, it, that's part mm. of the the Horus mm. who is is managing to avoid all the major crises mm. in life. Mm. But the other thing is, he puts that down for us. Um, mm. It's mm. not that we go through the tunnel with him and we can't see what went mm. before. And, and time and again, I find reading an ode or mm. or, or a satire mm. I get to the end and I go how did I get to there well exactly from there mm. but I go back mm -hmm. and and that often becomes the place where I or my students start mm. puzzling over mm -hmm. um, how we have what the transitions of thought yeah, yeah. And, and what the disjunctions of those yeah, thought yeah, yeah. do for us and, and that seems to me mm. a place where he's making us work a bit harder oh yeah and I think, you know, what we might have pointed out is that there are no titles in, in, in ancient poems. Mm. So with Horace, mm. you start at somewhere 
and you end up somewhere different. Yes. <laughs> and, and it doesn't and, go a happy you think, poem. How did we get here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's that this, this transitions are so smooth. You're not sure. And as, as, as Ellen said, then you then go back and think, what has he done? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you can't sometimes tell which is the primary subject of this poem and which is serving mm. it, or is mm-hmm. that the primary subject? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Auden said mm-hmm. he would have, if he'd lived in his Auden's day, he would have been best ending up in a vicarage um, yeah. and leading that sort of life. Right. But Auden, too, at his school, would have learned Latin and would mm-hmm. have, and probably when he went to Oxford, he would have learned mm-hmm. Latin, too, could continue with the learning of Latin. Now that's dying away, mm-hmm. as it were. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is Horace kind of running out of road? What do you think, Emily? Well, there's a, there's a flourishing Horatian society in London, which has after-dinner speeches, and you drink first to the Queen and then you drink to Horace. Mm. So his his flame is tended. Mm. I do sometimes wonder whether he doesn't really appeal most to middle-aged men. Mm. And I mean that of all, middle-aged men of all eras, not just the ones now mm. who might be the last mm. generations to learn Is Latin. the woman thing, to face it, which we didn't do really in the programme, is it a blight what what? Has oh, he, he's no, so he's gone out about of women fashion. that we can't really. Yeah. Oh, I see. Take yeah. I think, think I think people are more worried about his relationship to power. Actually, yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the what about his relationship to women to start with? First of all, mm. well, we didn't dwell on that. We've got a chance mm. to do a bit of dwelling mm. now. Right. What do you yes. think? Yeah. Uh, one could partly excuse him by saying that it is something to do with genre. That the women are an instrument of genre. So that so in the in the iambics, bodies of old women mm. are the muses of iambic. There's a tradition that goes way back that, that associates iambic with grotesque female figures. Of course, it's not just deference to that, but that could partly excuse it. Whereas in the odes, mm-hmm. people like Lydia, who you know one day will be blown you know mm-hmm. down the street like a withered leaf, um, women are extensions of the movement of time and the seasons. So a young girl is unripe, like an unripe grape, and then an older woman is is withered. Um, mm. And he does talk about ageing himself. Mm. And he talks true. about his own yes. ageing as well. His own mm. age, yes. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it, oddly enough, despite the uh, the greater level of abusiveness in the epodes, there's a stronger yes. sense of a female voice in the epodes. Um, because yes. that the woman is... A yes, is it a ends, actually, yes. strangely enough. The yes. epodes ends with Horace saying to the witch Canidia, I give up, you've won. And then she has a big speech and yes. says, why should I have mercy on you? And that's the end of the yeah. epodes, <laughs> her speaking. Yeah. And, you know, he is Horace thinking, do I have any power as a poet at all? Do, you know, what can I do? Uh, so she wrote him in the end. She does, yeah. 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 What does she say? It's quite a long speech. And, she, and he says, you know, I give up have mercy on me and she says well what do you think I am you know uh, why should I have mercy on you I, I, I you know I'm going to take my revenge because he said all these nasty things about her but in a way also it's not just how he treats women it's also that, that the sort of male coterie that feeling of homosociality mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, they're real people uh, mm-hmm. that feeling mm-hmm. of do you think the accusation of being pampered mistake the historical fact that he had to watch his step because it was that, that time if he was being patronised by the likes of Messinus mm. and Augustus he had to watch out mm. Well he's playing for very high stakes because yeah. he wants mm. to be um, not just a favourite poet he in didn't the want Augustan to be a dead regime poet, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> Not until not yeah, there's, there, there isn't a huge amount of evidence in the Augustan era for reprisals against people who mm. write literature 
Um, that that mm. that comes later on in the imperial period. So there isn't a uh, there isn't a strong precedent for uh, Horace. Um, but to he say didn't know that he could have started the. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it does take it does take a little while to get the ball rolling. It's not it's not actually that easy. I think people tend to think, oh, the emperor can do anything he wants. Mm. It's not that easy for the emperor to engineer the wiping out of one annoying poet. But uh, also he may have liked many of the things that Augustus was doing, as did mm. many others, mm. and I, I don't think it's all insincere. I suppose one of the uh, things we could point to here is, mm. is, is what we have in Suetonius's Life of Horace, mm. where he shows us some of Augustus's yes. letters mm-hmm. to, uh, to Horace, yeah. and one of the interesting yeah. things there is that, Horace, is that Augustus says to Horace, why don't you put me into your, into your sermon? Yes. Yeah. Um, mm. So he's, he's saying... Okay, you know, you've written lots of poems saying that I'm the son of a god and that I would be made a god myself and that, mm. you know, the safety mm. of the state depends on me. But you haven't put me in your conversational light poetry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I like a letter from you. Yeah. yeah. And then he gets a letter. He gets yeah. a harangue. Pistle <laughs> 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 to Augustus. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're getting a letter from the producer offering you a, something you can possibly refuse. Yeah, yeah. Nunc est bibendum to your coffee. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to your I, think, I think I'm finding just water. water. I'd love a biscuit. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Hello, I'm Tina Dehealy and alongside Matthew Price, we host the Beyond Today podcast from the BBC. Each weekday, we will tackle some of the biggest news stories with help from some of the best and most informed journalists in the BBC. This is the news podcast that jumps right in to give you that little bit more. So make sure you head over to the BBC Sounds app and search for Beyond Today and subscribe. If you'd like to join in the chat, make sure you use our hashtag BBC Beyond.